With your support, over the last 10 years, the Los Angeles Review of Books has published some of the best writing and thinking on books, culture, politics, and more. And it's available free to readers worldwide. We couldn't have done it without you, and we can't continue without your help. Give a gift between now and December 31st, and it will go twice as far through the generosity of an anonymous donor who will match all donations up to $100,000. The Los Angeles Review of Books is a reader-supported 50C3 nonprofit. Your tax-deductible donation will help secure the next 10 years of innovative, incisive, and indispensable writing and thought. Please consider making a donation to secure LARB's future today by going to lareviewofbooks.org slash donate. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And we're listening back to an event you and I did together for LARB's semi-public intellectual series called Online Together. That's right. We did this event in October, and we were joined. It's a very illustrious panel that joined us to talk about issues around technology, the internet, information and misinformation. And I believe we're going to be hearing excerpts from that conversation today. Yes, we had Anna Weiner of The New Yorker, Sophia Noble of UCLA, a MacArthur genius and a well-respected author of uh, Algorithms of Oppression, and Christoph Bieber, who is a scholar on uh, politics and misinformation and um, was joining because he'll be a fellow at the Thomas Mann House, I believe this spring, and the Thomas Mann House was a co-presenter of the event. So and you and I were both joking that we're like two of the least tech savvy people possible. So it was kind of ironic that we were the moderators, but hey, I thought it was a really great conversation. I thought so too. Maybe we can be thought of as stand-ins for audience members who don't really engage with technology or the internet that much. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> we're, okay. we're providing a service, really. Right. Um, well, let's listen to the conversation. Let's do it. so much for joining us today for the third semi-public intellectual session online together here at the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Irene Yoon, LARB's Executive Director, and it's my great pleasure to welcome our brilliant guest speakers who are joining us from across the country and globe today, Christoph Bieber, Sophia Noble, and Anna Wiener. Today's conversation will be moderated by our likewise brilliant and wonderful LARB Radio Hour hosts and editors at large, Medea Ocher and Kate Wolf. In addition to the invaluable contributions of both of them to LARB over the years, you'll soon be able to see Dea's incredible work as the managing editor of the new literary magazine, Astra, and can find Kate's writing in publications such as The Nation, Freeze, and Art in America. As you may all know, we put together this series as an anniversary celebration of the kinds of lively, timely conversations that LARB has worked to foster throughout the past decade of our existence. In tackling questions like where the discourse is or has gone in recent years, what it looks like to deploy academic training in the public sphere, where and how we can imagine and advocate for a more just future, 
or what the purpose or function of book and cultural criticism even is these days, there's perhaps no more fundamental question to all of these than the role of technology and digital communications in shaping the terrain and means of inquiry and engagement. So we're particularly grateful to have Christoph, Sophia, and Anna here to help us better understand and navigate the complexities therein. We are also, of course, very thankful to our co-sponsors of this event, the Thomas Mann House, a wonderfully vibrant residency center and space for transatlantic debate here in Los Angeles, and Columbia University Press, whose recent titles like Artificial Intimacy and You and Your Profile provide deep dives into the way that technology has transformed notions of identity and relational intimacy today. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to you, Daya and Kate. Thank you all so much for your support and for joining us today. We're so thrilled to have you all as part of this conversation. Thank you so much, Irene. And thanks to everyone for being here and our panelists. I just wanted to kind of introduce some of what we're going to be talking about today. So the title of this event is Online Together. You know, the infrastructure of so many of our social interactions and the very architecture of our social spheres are powered today by multinational corporations whose methods and partnerships aren't always apparent to us or even accessible. And our panelists have all devoted their careers to covering these industries and revealing some of how they function. And we're really glad to have them here today to share a bit of this information with us. I think we're really curious to hear them talk about how they report on and study tech. You know, how do they approach writing about an industry that is loathed by so many, myself included, but yet still shapes so much of our daily life and is on track to shape more and more of it? What are some of the answers they see to limiting and regulating the power of the industry? What are small things we can do to resist tech's monopoly on the social sphere and political discourse within it? Also, just selfishly, I'm curious to hear if they feel that there's any reason for hope. Will things ever be different or, you know, is it all just surveillance and space wars from here on out? And I really hope the answer to that is no. So I'm going to have my wonderful colleague, Medea, introduce everybody and just read their bios briefly. And then I'll ask the first question and we'll take it from there. Great. Thank you, Kate. And thank you, Irene. Thank you to all our panelists. I'm going to go ahead and introduce you. Please forgive me if I pronounce something German incorrectly. And let's get started. So our first panelist is Christoph Bieber. He's a professor of political science at the NRW School of Governance, University of Duisburg, Essen, Germany. He's published widely on the effects of online communication for political actors, with a special focus on addressing the effects of digitalization for the U.S. political system. Quite relevant for some of the midterms that are on the way. Since 2018, he's been delegated to the Center for Advanced Internet Studies in Bochum. Thank you, Christoph, for joining us. Then we also have Sophia Yu Noble, who is an associate professor of gender studies and African-American studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, where she serves as the co-founder and the director of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry. She's also the author of a best-selling book on racist and sexist algorithmic bias in commercial search engines. That book is called Algorithms of Impression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. And we also have Anna Wiener, who writes about tech culture for The New Yorker and is the author of the excellent book, Uncanny Valley, a book about her time working for Silicon Valley startups that was published last year. Thank you so much, you all, for joining us. 
I think maybe just to start, I'd love to hear each of you talk a little bit about how you came to write about tech and maybe how your thoughts about the industry evolved over time. You know, Anna and Sophia, you both worked in the tech industry and then later have now started to write about it. So I'm curious how perhaps the way you've seen things have changed, if they have. And then Christoph, you know, how you came to your particular area of expertise and study. I started writing about the industry actually in the form of book reviews. I was working in tech and writing book reviews on the side, mostly to use a part of my brain that I felt I had sort of lost and found that just writing about my experiences and observations working in tech in the early 2010s was actually quite interesting to me. And I think that that has informed some of the writing I've gone on to do now that I no longer work in the industry. I'm always more curious about the experience of employees and sort of rank and file workers than I am in the experiences or opinions of executives. And I'm always excited to read stories about the people who are actually sort of doing the work at these companies. And in terms of how things have changed, I mean, I think I think the industry is changing all the time, especially on a cultural level. I think where it's not really changing is in terms of the sort of incentives of the businesses and the business structures themselves. But when I started working, just as an example, when I started in tech in 2013, there was a lot of conversation about women in tech and diversity in tech. And that was largely focused on getting more white women into tech. And I think that even in the five years that I worked in the industry, that conversation really did evolve to become much broader and more rigorous, I think, in a lot of ways, whether or not that's reflected in the corporations themselves is a totally other conversation. Yeah, I might step in here. So uh, I didn't make it to the industry because maybe when I was first confronted with the internet, there wasn't any tech industry in Germany. I would have been able to join in. So a friend of mine led me to a secret room on the university campus back in 1994. And this was a room at the, I think it was the building for theoretical physics. And they had some computers connected to the internet in there. And then he showed me just some things. And from that point on, I probably had a not too bad idea that this could evolve into something that tackles also politics. And so I figured out this could be a good topic for my final exam. And then I had to persuade my professor to take this exam on that topic. And then I somehow got stuck in academia. (laughs) And I was offered the chance to do a dissertation on political projects on the internet, which is now more than 20 years old. That's terrifying somehow. But at that time, I think in Germany, at least, industry or tech industry was just no thing to think about because it wasn't really in the game. And when you studied what the internet did over the years in the US or in Europe, then I think in the early 2000s, you had the first encounters with the industry or tech companies as a real big factor for what the internet would be. And this would get even more thrust and impact at about, I think, 2009, 2010, when the social networks really took over. And since then, it is the most important topic, uh, I guess, for also the the social side, the social aspects of digital communication and everything was evolved since then. So I think there are at least two, maybe three phases of the involvement of tech companies in the internet. The first phase was very, very techy, nerdy one, I think, when it 
uh, was especially on the development and the distribution of the networks. And I think the real turning point was the rise of the social networks in the 2009, 10, 12 years. And from then on, their impact has grown ever since. Sophia? You know, I was thinking about that question, and I will tell you that I, I really got my start professionally as a young woman in the telecommunications industry when we were kind of first investing in community technology centers and before people really had internet at home in the way that we kind of do more ubiquitously here in the United States now. And I agree that, you know, so much has changed in my own kind of time and on the internet since kind of the late 80s, being on the web, even pre-graphic user interface. Now I'm just telling you all how old I am. I'm just, I'm very old. So I can remember, for example, when I was working for this very large telecommunications company that later provided all kinds of ISP services and other kinds of mobile computing and technology services. You know, I remember the early days of seeing like the first SMS messages going over our flip phones and talking at work about things like, you know, when you walk in the mall, you'll be able to be targeted by The Gap or some other company as you walk by with a coupon or some type of incentive to come into The Gap and buy jeans. And I remember thinking, that sounds horrible. <laughs> you know, like that sounds like a terrible way to walk through the mall. But, you know, because I was a young woman at the time, but, you know, fast forward, And now we're in the most like surveillance advertising kind of way of existing on the web and with these technologies that we've gone a really long way from where I think uh, my career starting with these conversations about to people in their town, to systems that data mine are every kind of psychographic, demographic, biometric data point to modify our behavior and get us interested in things like right-wing radicalization or other types of issues. So these things certainly, like this time that I've spent in my own life and my own professional careers on the internet have really shaped the way that now, today, when I think about the stakes and the consequences of those kinds of systems really over-determining what is possible, what people will experience, what they won't experience, you know, the types of predictive analytics, the types of systems that we are ensnared in. These things to me are some of the most pressing issues of the day. And I think that they are also deeply implicated in escalating global inequality and the suppression and rollback of civil and human rights. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I would say just as like some opening introductory remarks about myself and kind of how I came to these conversations, you know, maybe this is a little bit of a way to kind of enter the conversation with you. I want to ask Anna one follow-up. So that, it sounds like obviously there was a clear path of disenchantment for you, Sophia, from the, when you started in the industry to then how you saw the technology being shaped. Anna, did you have a similar awakening working in tech that then you decided to step away or was it more just that you liked writing better than working in tech? I don't think there was any particular moment of awakening or sort of come to Jesus moment for me. It was really more of a gradual disillusionment, both with the industry, but also with the sort of the culture of, of the industry, at least as I experienced it. And I did enjoy writing about it 
And, you know, that transition was kind of slow. You know, I feel incredibly lucky to be writing as a job that seemed unfathomable to me for many years. And so, but I think in terms of of that disillusionment, I still think that it, you know, even in writing the book, I was still kind of trying to shed my sort of (laughs) participation in the industry and the perspective I had cultivated working in the industry, even as a skeptic in a lot of ways. I think that it was very, very hard to sort of do a 180 on that for me. So Sophia, I think you brought up a really interesting question, which is like, which are the stakes of this conversation? And I wonder if each of you can discuss that a little bit. According to you know your work and your outlook on the tech industry, what do you think of as the stakes in terms of what you work on and how we should think about the stakes of the industry as a whole? Yeah, well, I can give it a try because I was just thinking about what does really tech industry mean for me? And I was coming across the idea that this would rather mean working and do some exchanges with the administration and government. And of course, stakes are high also in this dimension. So when you look to Germany, we just had a general election and we don't have a new government. But this coalition talks just are about to start. And what we hear, one of the important or maybe the most important point, at least this number one on the list of things to talk about, is the digital state and the future of the administration. So this is a signal on how important tech development as in civic tech, as well as in what does politics do to regulate tech companies or to support tech companies. And when you look at German politics, you probably have both perspective. So it's about supporting German companies to be competitive on the world market, which is not really the thing we do have right now here. There are some players that are well known and there are many that are only famous in their very small region where they are some kind of a local champion. But how does politics or should politics act to to support those small companies? And on the other hand, we have the really the dark forces of the U.S. tech companies or maybe China, on the other hand, that are trying to destroy what is growing maybe as a small German or better European tech industry. And this is a really important thing where politics in Germany, at least right now, is trying to find a position. And it will be very interesting for us to follow which party may have the better stakes after these coalition talks because we have the liberal democrats in the upcoming government which are traditionally tech friendly and they want to support tech companies and then we do have the green party and the social democrats they are known as the more skeptical part for regulating tech and so i'm very curious at the end which of those positions will come through when it comes to a new government. So the stakes are high, of course. And in Germany, you do have two perspectives. How can we provide a good ground and working field for German tech companies to grow? And how can we build some kind of a shelter against the big and sometimes maybe evil companies coming up from the US and China? I agree. I mean, I think these stakes are incredible in terms of, you know, the way that, 
They're typically framed in the United States as, you know, an economic arms race, which I think we should push back on, quite frankly, because I think some of that kind of AI arms race dialogue that U.S. officials and tech CEOs often engage in is really a little bit of a red herring in order to ensure U.S. global dominance in the tech sector. And I think we see the pushback from the EU and other parts of the world in terms of what it means to have outsized influence of American companies governing or setting the rules of governance around the web internationally. And of course, there are different kinds of stakes when we know that companies, for example, like Facebook, have company cultural mottos like company before country. And so there are these kinds of stakes around how much more insecure the world is becoming by companies that really prioritize their profits at all costs over democracy around the world. So there are different stakes for different people and different actors in our destruction of our humanity versus these technologies. So, you know, there's, I think there's different levels, structural and more personal and individual times to make legible when we're thinking about where to intervene, right? And where to potentially shift that landscape and shift those stakes. But certainly one of the things I try to say in my book is, you know, that we have more data and technology than ever, but we also have more global social, political, and economic inequality and injustice to go with it. And so part of what I think we're also trying to suss out is the degree to which many of these kinds of network technologies are implicated in escalating inequality around the world. And I think those are pretty big stakes. Just with respect to the the work that I've been doing, because I often feel like It's very hard for me, at least, to address technology as a monolith or even Silicon Valley as a monolith these days. And something I've been really interested in recently is the intellectual culture of Silicon Valley. The, you know, who's considered an intellectual figure? How are people getting their information or their ideas? What are the sort of more pervasive ideologies that are either emergent or kind of latent? And, you know, to me, this is important for all of the obvious reasons. These are people who are sort of setting the terms of the industry who are building tools who, you know, might be working on something like a company that contracts with the defense department and is building hardware or might be working on sentencing algorithms really matters where people are getting their sort of intellectual frameworks. But also I think that it's interesting to me because Silicon Valley is itself, I mean, I say that as a a sort of general term, I don't even really know specifically what I mean by that, but venture funded companies, a lot of what they have been selling over the past decade our ideas. And I think that a lot of companies, you know, that's sort of like what futurism is, at least in a kind of corporate framework. And so what are the origins of these ideas and how might they be instrumentalized and, you know, to what end? So I don't know if that's exactly articulating the stakes, but that's sort of where my head has been lately and what I'm sort of trying to unearth in some of the work I've been doing. And I guess this kind of a applies most to you since you're the one who writes most for a general popular audience. But everyone, it seems like it's so difficult, such a difficult balance to cover tech in Silicon Valley because on the one hand, it's not the ideas and innovation are not bad things in and of themselves, but many of the business models seem like part of the problem. So you don't want to be completely dismissive of innovation, but at the same time, it's like a lot of the people in the industry are bad actors. So it seems like 
a really difficult tone to kind of nail down in terms of writing, especially maybe for a general audience. But then just in general, like you don't want to just be outraged. You don't want to just uncover, you know, bias. It's like you want to maybe also believe in some of the original promise of the tech industry and see if that's there at all. So just maybe talking about that really difficult balance of actually reporting on some of these companies. Sure. I mean, I think that it's not so much that I personally want to believe in sort of original promise or the idealism of the industry or of the internet even. It's more that I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. I think that when people say that they believe in the transformative power of social media, I believe that they believe that usually, mostly. And so trying to understand why people would believe that and where they're coming from and, you know, I think that personally, I tend to give the benefit of the doubt far beyond the point of it being reasonable, which I think is my own naivete. But I I think that you have to sort of assume that people believe in the work that they're doing for one reason or another, not just because of their paycheck, although that's certainly accurate sometimes. And then sort of try to understand the goals and how does it, outside of the bubble of the tech industry or even of tech coverage, where else might this be influential? And I think that to your point about innovation, it's true. Innovation in and of itself is not a bad thing. And I don't think anyone wants to position themselves as anti-innovation. I think it's really about, you know, who do these technologies benefit? Who might they harm? And I think one of the things that I've noticed in recent years is a certain alignment with science that tech companies and tech executives think have sort of positioned themselves on the side of science. And so who wants to be anti-science when actually, I think in many cases, what a lot of companies are doing is a totally separate, it's corporate, it's business. So anyway, I think there's like a lot of stuff going on there in the sort of marketing and rhetoric that is really interesting and, and might be a way to kind of dodge a lot of the criticism that's come up in recent years against the industry. Maybe I could comment a little on that and on the perception of Silicon Valley as a metaphor or concept in Germany. So I think During the last 15 or maybe 20 years, leading figures in politics and not so much culture, but industry regularly travel to Silicon Valley and try to get to find inspiration. And they usually they find something and write books. It tries to bring this special atmosphere to Germany as some kind of a, yeah, let's say paradise. And A lot of young entrepreneurs still look to Silicon Valley and try to figure out how can they copy and maybe paste some of the ideas to the German market. And this doesn't really work well. So we don't have the ecosystem that has evolved over the last not three, four, five, six decades anywhere in Germany. We do have micro copies maybe somewhere in the southwestern part of Germany where the automotive industry sits. They call their area Cyber Valley and they try to infuse technology into their very small spectrum of the industry. We do have Berlin and maybe Hamburg and maybe maybe Munich as the three cities that claim to be tech hubs or but they are really, really small in comparison to the things that evolved in Silicon Valley or elsewhere in the world. And I think every spot has to develop his own history in becoming some kind of Silicon Valley. And I think it's about the small stories that develop. We can see 
for instance, in Berlin, we just have a really heated controversy about the 10-minute delivering platforms. So it's Gorillas and Flink. And so they are called here. And they cramp the cities with their bicycles or their vans when they deliver stuff in less than 10 minutes to the people. And everybody has the idea, well, this might be innovative, but is it really helpful? And is it a story worth being told to the broader public as an innovation. And in Germany, this is a really tough thing, not only to set up a running business, but also tell a good story. And this is, I think, something that works definitely much better in the US. But during the last years, you do have much more powerful critics to this development in the US. We do have some of those people over here, but they are not really read or heard that good as the really prominent and good authors and critics in the US are. And it seems in that case, you know, the 10-minute delivery, it's at the expense of a worker who has to deliver something in 10 minutes. That The novelty is also part of what undercuts the actual labor practices of the company, which is that if you don't deliver something in 10 minutes, you'll probably get in a lot of trouble. So, Sophia, do you have thoughts on the tone of the coverage? I really appreciate this conversation so much because so many things are running through my mind about the way that innovation gets harnessed as like a focal point to the detriment of all the costs that come with so-called innovation. And of course, I see this as a person who lived in the Bay Area through the first dot-com boom and bust. I live in Los Angeles now where we have the emergence of Silicon Beach because Silicon Valley is in essence, been has ruined the Bay Area in so many ways, made afford, you know, housing unaffordable, created so many conditions, again, under this like discourse of innovation that, you know, I appreciate this conversation really helps us underscore like what the costs are, the human costs. And part of that includes things like that the workers themselves and not just the white collar workers, but the whole kind of supply chain of workers, if you will, the domestics who have to clean the hotels that are in Silicon Valley and near Silicon Beach who can't afford to live anywhere, like sometimes are living in campers on the side of the road or are commuting three, four, five hours to get to these low wage, minimum wage jobs to uphold this facade of an innovative place. Right. And so, you know, we have to ask the questions about what does it mean when people come out and try to fight gentrification in San Francisco and the takeover of public infrastructure that is not subsidized by Silicon Valley because, of course, or any of these corridors around the world, because those places, you know, use the public bus stop to pick up their workers in their Wi-Fi enabled air conditioned buses, right, to take workers from the Bay Area down to down the peninsula. So it's like all these dimensions, I mean, these are the things that I write about are these kind of, what does innovation mean? Why do we leave these parts out of the cost materially of the so-called innovation? The innovation, I think, is for like the most powerful extraction and, you know, tripling by X factors, right, of shareholder profits, but at an incredible amount of like innovative extraction and depression of wages and escalation of housing and food costs. To me, I feel like where we can learn are other 
moments in at least in American history, but certainly I'm sure others in U.S. history, where we have like discourses about innovations in agriculture, for example, you know, or in the Industrial Revolution that came with alongside with things like enslavement or no wage protection, no worker protection, child labor. We have to kind of look at the whole system here of what's tied to these kind of alleged innovations. And then I think we might use different words to describe what's happening. And I think often what's positioned as innovation is like an end run around regulation and an erosion of labor protections and the establishment of a new monopoly. So I think that rhetoric is actually incredibly important here. And I think that this is sort of one of the challenges, at least for me, about writing about the tech industry is that for so long, these companies have really set the terms of the conversation. And I mean that both with respect to the sort of mystification of the labor that happens in the white collar workplaces and actually also, you know, with contractors and with independent contractors who are doing physical labor out in the world for gig economy companies, but also the sort of the language itself that people use to write about these companies. I mean, think about even a term as simple as ride sharing. This to me seems it's slowly starting to get phased out in favor of ride hailing or transportation simply. But uh, yeah, I think that on the level of language, it's incredibly shifty. And I think that there's, uh, we've sort of seeded the terms of the conversation in some way over the last decade. I'd like to add one thing to something Anna said just a couple of minutes ago, uh, when she mentioned that the tech industry tries to side with science. So because who's against science? I think during the pandemic, we've learned that there still are people who are well, at least critically minded against science, at least those vaccination denial people. We do have some of them in Germany. And so it's not that any innovation or innovation in itself is being conceived as a good thing per se. So you have to persuade lots of people that what is connected to the innovation is a good thing. Well, during the pandemic, the development of a vaccine in this incredibly short amount of time and the production of it and the distribution of it, at least in some parts of the world, is a really, really big, huge and good innovation. And still, there are some people criticizing. So just to be on the side of science, that's sometimes not enough. And I don't know how the situation is in the US, but in Germany, those, we call them querdenker, thinking across the lines somehow, trying to uh, translate they build movements and there is already a party. Well, they got just 1.2% of the vote during the last election, but they are there and they get money, they get funded. So there are networks and there are structures on the rise and they are clearly very, very critically against science and they try to act against it. So it's a little bit more difficult than just siding with science and all is good and innovation is good. So beware of the critics. But, and the, that anti-science message is, of course, amplified all over social media. So that's the rub, right? It's They're using social media to promote fringe views. I'm sort of curious, not to get too far into the weeds on this anti-vax material or just a resistance to vaccination, but in the U.S., I think some of the resistance to the COVID vaccine is because of a deep distrust in American institutions, whether it's the medical establishment or the government. And that to me seems like it's very much has to do with the diversity of the U.S. and how different 
demographics have been discriminated against and treated by some of these institutions. And I'm curious what that looks like in Germany, because it seems to me that it's a much more homogenous population. And also there is public access to medicine. Does it cut across any particular demographic lines? I'm afraid we do not know enough about those people right now. But first, population here in Germany is not that homogeneous anymore. So we are starting to get more diverse. And especially in Germany, the reaction on the pandemic measurements coming from politics were being accepted very differently across the regions and the federal states in Germany. So because every federal state had more or less its own pandemic policy. And so you had, especially in the south southwest of Germany, in Baden-Württemberg, where this automotive cyber valley is, irritatingly, a very high number of people opposing the vaccination activity. And nobody really can explain that, why it is that way. We do have a large number of people that are opposing institutional politics in the eastern part of Germany. And of course, there are also a lot of people opposing institutional politics when it comes to pandemic measurement. But these are two totally different groups. So it's not that homogeneous. And I'm really not sure how this will play out over time. Maybe just one thing to add. There is a strange symmetry between vaccination denial and the critic of the public media in Germany. We do have a quite not only public medicine, but also public media, which is maybe in times of pandemic quite helpful, both of them. But the vaccination resistance is also very strongly opposing everything public media do. And, and of course, they do use social media to distribute their own opinion. And this is a really strange mixture. And I'm not sure where this will develop during the next one or two years. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation online together, part of LARB's semi-public intellectual series. So quickly before we, we get to questions from the audience, I think one of the things that the conversation about innovation, the language that we use, there um, leads to logically is regulation, even when it's really just a term for for many different things. Um, Sophia, do you mind maybe starting off on how you think about, I know it's a big question, but how you think about sort of the next steps in regulating the industry or steering it in the right direction? Sure, thank you. You know, I am, it's just, amazed that we are talking about regulation of the tech industry in the United States. Finally, we're pretty far behind other parts of the world. And, you know, there are a lot of different kinds of ideas that range from reformist ways of thinking about modifying existing policy, like Section 230, for example, which Section 230 of the um, Communications Decency Act of the Federal Communications Commission really is about whether platforms, for example, should be liable for the kinds of speech that happen or the kinds of disinformation or other kinds of um, illegal activity that happen on their platforms. And, um, you know, we know that the most tech companies have 
total immunity um, under Section 230 for any kind of accountability. So I think there are people who have been pressing very hard and will continue to press around 230 and to see more liability, um, including things, you know, I'm thinking of the work of people like Daniel Citron. But there are also other people working quite actively, local and state, and to some degree federal levels around making certain kinds of technologies illegal. Um, or, um, and this, of course, we've seen bans on things like facial recognition at the city and county level, uh, limits on the use of certain types of technology uh, by law enforcement and other kinds of state actors. I think one of the big opportunities is, you know, that I am trying to think through in my own work and in the work of our center at UCLA are things like what would it mean to have a regulation where you cannot um, control more, more than one layer of the stack, for example, or have undue um, or outsized monopoly control if you are at those kind of software layer, you know, can you also control the infrastructure? You know, what? how do we think about these types of issues? Should something like the practice of surveillance advertising be made, made illegal? To what degree do our agencies have the ability to think about civil rights and the encroachments upon civil rights by this sector? There are many other industries who have much higher standards of um, responsibility to the public and oversight. And for whatever reason, you know, um, Silicon Valley, well, we, we know the reasons. I mean, it's had the most powerful lobby in the United States and is able to control the uh, regulatory framework, um, which has mostly been about not having a regulatory framework. I think we should keep our eye on Many of the big companies that are arguing um, for regulation, you know that means that they are trying to set in motion terms that are most favorable to their companies. And um, But, you know, I think regulation is inevitable and it's happening because we have so much more evidence of harm um, and that, that harm is building. And we have many, many more victims of a variety of different kinds of technological projects. And as that, as those harms keep amassing, we're going to have to have laws and um, remedies in place. And I think that, you know, public policy uh, should and will catch up with those harms. Sorry, Christoph, please go ahead. Oh. I was going to say, this is really more in your wheelhouse. I share your, the hope you have, Sophia, in uh, politics that they will find a way to regulate uh, tech companies and uh, but, but I think this will take time. And uh, we can already see that it takes time. What does politics do when it wants to uh, try to regulate innovations? How to regulate the new? Usually, politics uh, draws to old means of regulation. But you can't regulate or set a framework for an algorithm uh, similar to the way you do that for, let's say, cars. But that's what politics does in, in uh some situations. And so there is a learning curve is needed to, to bring politics in a position to, to actually understand what's happening in tech and in innovation uh, and then develop new means of uh, regulating the things that happen. And you can see that at least a bit in, in what in Germany is, is right now happening when it comes to the use of uh, artificial intelligence. And there are some 
new organizations and, and formats being set up that, that try to deal with this innovative, innovative path of development we, we can see there. But it will take time to implement those uh, structures into politics. So I, I really do hope that within the next four years, when we have our new, new government in place during the next four or six weeks, that they will start to implement a real functioning framework for regulating tech um, because we don't really have things like that. And I think this is also a, a, some kind of a generational problem um, when it comes to the politicians who have to, to deal with those problems. Many of the politicians, at least in Germany and probably in the US too, maybe even more, uh, are simply too old to under fully understand what is happening there and how uh, technology is changing or, or already has changed all of our lives. And I think we do need more digital native politicians to better understand and develop and implement uh, political measurements to better keep up with things that happen in technology. There in this field, they just happen. And then politics has to step in and has to intervene. And I, I guess, and of course, there is a good part of the hope we already talked about, uh, is in the next two or three generations of politicians who hopefully go into politics, maybe because they, they uh, sense the, the problems that come up with technology and have the, the strong itch to stop that. This would be a larger part of my hope I have. Anna, do you have thoughts? I do have thoughts specifically about CDA 230, but there are a few questions in the Q&A that are really nice that I wonder if maybe, do you guys want to jump to those? I wrote yeah, a, long, sure. a long piece about Section 230 a few months ago, and so I feel I've said my piece in the public sphere. <laughs> <laughs> um, so was there a question that jumped out at you from the, from the list here? Well, I'm curious about this one about the sort of neo-colonial extractive practices underpinning tech. I am especially curious to hear uh, from Christoph and Sophia about whether there are people in academia who, who are focusing on this. I, it does seem to me a really undercovered uh, dimension to the tech industry. And in certain respects, I guess, because there's so much of an emphasis on the internet rather than on hardware and on how physical technologies are actually built. And, you know, I guess the internet obviously has a physical, is a physical technology. But um, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not familiar with anyone doing um, work on that specifically. I'm curious if you guys have heard. I, I might just, sorry to interrupt everybody, um, but because this might be on the radio and listeners on the radio wouldn't have an opportunity to see the question, I'm just going to quickly read the question so that um, anybody will be able to, <laughs> to access what, what you all will discuss. It's a very interesting question. So one of the audience, uh, a member of the audience has asked, I wanted to ask about the transnational uh, neo-colonial extractive practices underpinning tech and their envi environmental consequences, as we see with the power usage required for mining Bitcoin, precious metals used to make computers, et cetera. So they're asking literally about actual extraction of resources. And are there ways that this is being addressed? So um, sorry to interrupt. So, so let's answer that very interesting question. Well, I don't mind jumping in and just saying, you know, I wrote an article about this a few years ago about precisely framing it this way as kind of neo-colonial patterns 
of economic relationships and the kind of supply chain of the internet from extractive mining industries in the Congo to, you know, manufacture consumption, which is the primary way in which Americans or people in the U.S. experience the internet is as consumers and to some degree white collar makers. And then, you know, all the way through to kind of like e-waste. And I spent a couple of I, three summers ago, I spent time in Accra, um, in Ghana, looking at e-waste and other kinds of waste that have completely transformed what was previously a beautiful, pristine wetland into a massive, um, toxic waste space. And in the middle of, of the city, and um, there are people, you know, I'm thinking of people like uh, Professor Mel Hogan um, in Canada. I, I think Mel might be at Calgary now. Um uh, writing about the environmental consequences of things like large-scale server farms and uh, the consequences there. There are certainly a number of people who are organizing, organizers um, that are writing and talking about decolonizing the internet. And of course, that means that to decolonize, we have to look at the extraction all the way through the waste. Miriam Posner, somebody who's written quite a bit about supply chains, of course, these attendant issues around global supply chains, even the most recent um, firing, um, the most famous firing now from Google of our colleague, Dr. Tamit Jabril, who was the head of AI and ethics, Google, who was fired for her collaboration on a paper, which you can read about the MIT Tech Review, did a very good um, article about what that paper was about and what the consequences were, which looked not only at patterns of racial discrimination that were emerging in natural language processing technologies that are emerging at Google, but also the profound environmental consequences of large-scale data modeling. And there are definitely people who've been writing for the past two or three years about large-scale data modeling and how much energy that takes. So I think that, you know, to the degree that we, we can actually start to define a field now, a landscape. And that landscape is not actually very different when you think about kind of the colonial logics, not just the neo-colonial, but the colonial logics of other industries. And, um, you know, in my own writing, I've talked about, for example, when the Belgians were extracting rubber from the Congo under the most brutal, the most some of the most brutal human rights violating, destructive, life-destroying conditions, the way Americans experienced that uh, was the expansion of the automobile industry and the boom of personal car ownership in the 1950s and the 1960s, which were discursively about freedom, the freedom to move about um, without really understanding these kind of relationships to other parts of the world upon which those free, alleged freedoms were predicated. Of course, now we see what global warming and climate change and all of these things around autom the automotive industry have done. So I think that we are seeing more and more people writing in this space and trying to make these linkages legible. Can add a few sentences? Uh... We, we do have a, a rising branch of post-colonial studies over here in Europe and in Germany also, but I think these are not that digitally interested right now. It's more the traditional 
post-colonial or colonial studies. Not that much in, in this uh, uh, connection to what, what uh, digitalization does in this specific field. I think this will take maybe uh, two or three more years. What we also have in, in Germany is, is not a really a, a genuine discipline that might be called digitalization studies. So we do have media scholars, we do have uh, sociologists, we have political scientists, we have uh, communication uh, studies uh, experts. They are all dealing with more or less small, smaller parts of, of what digitalization has made of the world. And maybe these different uh, lines of, of research um, come together during the next five or 10 years, that would be my my, my guess. And, and we try to do something like that at the Center for Advanced Internet Studies. Um, and there are two or three more uh, similar institutions in, in Germany. So you, you can see that, that things are moving. And within this uh, uh, stream of research, we do also have the strong notion that sustainability is a really uh, important thing to think about during the next couple of years. So I think the, the problems mentioned in uh, uh, the question from, from the, the Q&A section or uh, what uh, Sophia uh, addressed in her uh, last couple of sentences is something that is on the rise, but it's very difficult to point to two or three authors or scientists who are really now dealing with those things. And if they do, they probably don't do that in English right now. So there is a very interesting book in German on the power of platforms. It's written by Michael Seemann. And I hope that he will uh, get the chance to translate that because it's a very profound to describe how platforms since the last 10, 12, 14 years have changed uh, almost everything uh, on the net. I want to jump in and just ask, have another question from the audience. And this one is kind of what I was wanting to get at throughout this whole talk. Um, but it's it's hard to, I'm sure, to answer because it's this is one of the questions of, of our present day. How can we forge any kind of effective or even credible critique of tech when our lives, social connections, professional lives, information sharing are so dependent on tech infrastructure? That seems like a, a big question. I guess I don't see those things as mutually exclusive. And so I, I guess I'm, I'm sort of curious about the, the premise of the question, because uh, it sort of seems to suggest that critique of technologies is somehow lacking credibility or undermined by the critics' participation in like social information uh, systems. So I don't know, I'm, I'm just, I'm sort of curious. Well, uh, I mean, I guess I, I understand the idea of feeling really complicit if you use all these products, you know, and also it seems like more and more, for instance, I could just share my own experience. I, I never used to have a, um, a smartphone until the last year because actually now, because I didn't, even though I'm, I, I'm, I'm not tech, super tech savvy, so I didn't know if my flip phone, you know, I'm sure that it was still tracked on my flip phone, but some of the idea of eluding more and more surveillance appealed to me. But now... I have to have a, a smartphone to check my son into preschool. So I actually can't not have one anymore. Um, and more and more, it seems like with smart homes, with smart cities, 
uh, we actually might not have the choice to refrain. Also, with certain monopolies of industries, with Amazon o- owning Whole Foods, and I'm sure taking over more and more, you know, supermarkets, we we might not be able to to opt out. But now that we still can, if we're giving Amazon our dollars, or you know, we're another mark for Facebook to extract our data, aren't we somewhat complicit in this structure that we all don't want to exist? Sure. I think I guess what I'm saying is that the dependency is the critique. And I don't think that opting out is an effective critique at all. I think that is uh, one has to be realistic about the world that we live in and clear-headed about the, you know, the incentives <laughs> that these companies have. And, and I don't think that implication necessarily precludes meaningful or effective critique. In, in fact, I think that it's very, very useful to acknowledge that dependency. I think that, that that's often the, the sort of a very meaningful component of critique. I want to just underscore that, Anna, because I think that, you know, my students can have an amazing critique of capitalism and feel that things like global inequality predicated upon, let's say, predatory economic practices are something they don't want to participate in, and then they still have to use. American dollars to pay the rent, you know, or they're still paid. They still have to work for a wage. So I think, you know, it is very important that we have like a systems level um, analysis um, because we're not going to solve all these problems just purely through personal choices. In fact, people, people's range of choices are becoming more and more narrow as we have monopoly control over different sectors of the kind of tech economy. So I think those are things to think about. I guess I I read the question a little bit differently, like my ear heard it or my eyes saw it a little bit differently. And I would just say one of the reasons why I think humanists are so incredibly important in uh, these conversations, like the historians, is that they help us remember other moments, other paradigms that we've lived under as human beings um, where we had what we felt were totalizing and ubiquitous social relations that could not be upended. And so for me, I draw a lot of inspiration from reading the work of abolitionists and people who worked to help us understand the incredibly small community of people who worked to abolish things like the transatlantic slave trade or the institution of slavery in the United States and in the Americas. Because one of the things that happened during those centuries was that we had the same, well, very similar kinds of discourse that we could never dismantle the enslavement of African peoples. We could never stop the expansion into occupying Native people's lands because the American economy was dependent upon it. Because the whole way of life as, as American, as white Americans knew it, was predicated upon that. And I think that's where we have so much to learn about reimagining under different conditions and this is where the work of people who work as abolitionists in the tech sector you know, why our work is important because we're also trying to, at the same time that we're resisting, you know, these totalizing experiences, we're also saying there can be other possibilities that are not predicated upon exploitation and then the fabrication of narratives that it's impossible to undo it. 
um, or it's impossible to escape it. And so I think, you know, for me, that's what makes me incredibly hopeful about the, the possibilities for the future. Would you guys suggest a more holistic, in terms of then resisting working against some of these structures, is it just a, a more holistic approach to activism? Is it about participating in, you know, labor, conversations about labor, about equality, economic equality, um, or are there just specific things that one can do to make like everyday acts of resistance uh, in relationship to tech? Well, Kate, I loved your example about you had to join in to uh, participate in like, you know, systems you didn't want to participate in to drop the baby off at daycare or preschool. And, you know, many of us know what that's like, but I, you know, well, first of all, don't ever underestimate what the moms can do or um, because we could do a lot of things and we do. And I think, you know, we also know where these systems touch our lives are, you know, in these most intimate of ways that require, like are, that are required for our participation. And again, that being a bit of a, let's say, you know, I think of this as like snake oil software that's sold to schools and sold to the public as like a requirement. I'm like, you know, I use the same technology to drop off the fifth, the fifth grader. And I'm like, this doesn't say that he's not sick. I mean, this is just like something the lawyers believe will, you know, I don't know, protect the institutions. I mean, there's a lot of ways I, I'm more cynical, I guess, when I look at some of these, um, you know, requirements. But I think people, local people in our local communities, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, we are able to articulate and push back. And we should be doing those. We should be talking about um you know, proctoring software that, you know, limits the range of contribution and um, intellectual creativity for students who are working remotely and what it means to not even be able to have internet and to go to school. And this is a time to reimagine the systems rather than capitulate um, and feel, you know, boxed in by them. And again, I think that so much of this is like local organizing that is then also connected globally. In, in fact, I'll be very interested in, in those acts of resistance of, of digital disobedience or data disobedience that, that might arise from, from those structures. And actually, this is one of the topics I will uh, think about when I will be at the Thomas Mann House during uh, next summer. So, uh, because I guess that, that the, the development of those smart cities that tend to not reflect that there are also citizens supposed to live in those smart cities and not every citizen will uh, of course use every offering every benefit a smart city could deliver so i think that there will be acts of resistance of disobedience of uh, holding data back in some way to try to improve the situations and, and not to simply just give up. I don't think that this will lead to a more holistic way of uh, participation or resistance, but I think uh, that every single one has to figure out in, in what niche he or she can deliver an act of resistance and help to uh, speak against the system that, that tries to, to know everything about us. I don't think that this will work in all aspects, 
at the same time. But I think everyone could think about where could I hold my data back or doesn't generate any data? Well, I think we have time for perhaps one more question. Would our panelists like to choose one of these? We have one on uh, about free speech, another about the major lessons of the last decade in terms of labor organization in the tech industry, and one about the app, Apple's privacy policy. Anna, I would so love to hear um, your thoughts on the free speech and 230. I can't help it because I think just getting some of your wisdom into the conversation on that would be so helpful because it probably also would get, maybe we, we might have a minute to even think about tech workers and how they're like reframing what they think around some of these issues too. So I hate to put you on the spot, but I just would love to hear from you. The question is, so far innovation has been discussed as the good associated with tech in public, but I would like to hear about what the speakers think about the role of free speech as this good today. So Anna, go ahead. I mean, I think that the, sorry that I keep doing this, but the, um, the term free speech has really been distorted and weaponized. And uh, I mean, it's always been political, but politicized in the last few years in a way that is confusing and upside down and not particularly new, but definitely feels more pervasive. Um, free speech being the the good associated with tech, is that sort of, that's like the prompt? That's. <laughs> um, I mean, I think one of the things that is interesting about 230 that kind of touches on the conversation we were having earlier about regulation is that the we're fundamentally working, we're working with fundamentally um, inadequate legislation. So 230 was actually written to protect companies from legal ramifications if they did moderate. So the idea was that, uh, you know, companies were protected from being considered from liability for editorial decisions. And that the thought was that there would be much more moderation and platforms would take the lead in, in moderating content that people were posting. And, you know, this didn't really have in mind an internet where speech was happening across a really limited number of platforms. And so I think that often the conversation about, uh, about moderation and free speech doesn't really take into account the conversation about monopoly and the fact that that the corporations that we tend to focus on, like Twitter and Facebook or I don't know Reddit, that we shouldn't we shouldn't only have a handful of companies where speech is happening online uh, or where people are paying attention to speech. And so I think that you know it can be sort of hard to evaluate to talk about this without talking about the kind of actual landscape of um, like public space, sort of, if you want to call it that, although I'm ambivalent about that description um, and just how, how narrow it is. Uh, and in terms of it, you know, also being the good side of tech, I, I do think that free speech online has led to remarkable things. And so I don't want to discount it. And I think that a lot of the sort of suggestions for how to amend 230 are really dangerous and it's an imperfect law and there are a lot of imperfect solutions being proposed. And so I think that someone like Danielle Citron, if I understand, and if I'm recalling her project accurately, and please correct me if I'm wrong on this because I'm rusty, it's looking for ways to sort of regulate around 230 to, and now, now I'm getting nervous because she's brilliant and I'm <laughs> gonna butcher it, but um, you know, wh where are there, to, to get really specific about it rather than have this kind of broad strokes Piece of legislation that you know 
has always been sort of inadequate, but also seems like uh, it needs to remain untouchable. I don't know if that's answering the question. I'm sorry. Forgive me for just rambling on about that. Was there something that you had in mind in particular that you wanted to to touch on? No, I mean, I think that's right. I think that 230 is part of the kind of um, shield for talking about free speech. And of course, you know, free speech is, is, um, you know, well, let's put it this way, the First Amendment and this is where I would invoke people like Marianne Franks too, um, her, you know, her book, The Cult of the Constitution, which really kind of underscores that another dimension of the First Amendment is the right to assemble and the degree to which not only monopoly platforms, but also the way that free speech is weaponized to silence people and foreclose the right to assemble, let's say, for example, also I think is nuanced. And I think that, you know, when I look at um, Danielle's work and Marianne's work, you know, I think they're trying to help us get a much more granular understanding of what is, what is the First Amendment and for whom is it, you know, how is it used to actually silence people, keep people from democratic participation, let's say, broadly speaking, and who remains vulnerable to having no protections. And of course, their work on the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, I think, has been one of the more important um, manifestations of that. And looking at, for example, getting, you know, non-consensual pornography protections for people, women in particular, um, and other like and sexual minorities, people who who were completely unprotected from things like revenge porn and had no rights. And there was no liability whatsoever for platforms that also monetize, you know, trolling or profit from viral trolling of of women in these ways. So, you know, I think like the free speech paintbrush, I totally agree with you. It's just like, it's very, that's just not enough. It's just too blunt an instrument. If we're going to talk about the First Amendment, then let's really talk about whether it's designed to create more access and whether the platforms as they interpret it are doing that. Um, and then, of course, more access for whom. And this is where I'd invoke the work of people like Jesse Daniels um, in her amazing book, Cyber Racism, which she would argue that it creates more space and more opportunity for the most racist and the most nefarious actors on the Internet rather than the people who are vulnerable to their harm. Maybe just a few last words from Europe on this topic, uh, because when, when I was listening to you, uh, again, comes to my mind that there are still mechanisms here in Europe in place that do fundamentally uh, change the way uh, it is communicated. So especially in Germany, we do have strong, strong, really strong public media. And although there's a growing amount of criticism against those public media, I think this is kind of a good shelter against things that just happen in the, the publics or the media systems that are almost totally um, uh, dependent to the market. And although we do have those tendencies in, in Germany too, there are commercial TV networks coming up. There are right-wing media uh, companies trying to, to get into the market. It's to a significant degree more difficult to do that when you have strong public media in place. 
The problem with those public media is they are too traditional. They are still too much oriented to radio, traditional radio and traditional broadcast TV. And it's for them very difficult to, to develop new ways to uh, put themselves into the place of the digital public sphere. Once the public media in, in Germany uh, find better ways to, to be seen and heard in online environments, then this would, I think, uh, contribute to a more healthy public conversation. And from this point, looking to the US, it's of course much more difficult to, to develop a new strong public media system or a space, as you called it, for a healthy public conversation. This is really tough and really uh, difficult. And in, in Europe, you, you can see the, the problem. It's almost impossible to, to uh, scale this model from the few countries that do have healthy public media systems, the, the Northern European countries, the UK in most parts, Germany, and to, to uh, all of Europe. Even this is very difficult. But I still think this is a good point in thinking about how can we try not actually to regulate, but to, to improve the, the communication culture in the new, in the digital media realm. And I'm still not sure whether it will turn out positive in, in, in Germany, because we still need, I think, five or 10 years to, to bring our public media system on a level that is at least competitive with what's happening in, in the commercial digital uh, media realm. And this is a huge problem. And I hope that we, on both sides of the ocean, can, can uh, learn from each other how to, to uh, improve communication culture in itself. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a, a good note to end on, to improving communication culture. Uh, indeed. Yeah, thank you all so much for joining us today for overcoming time differences and continents and internet issues <laughs> to make this truly fascinating conversation happen. Um, I wish we could continue to talk longer because I would just love to continue to hear all of you um, speak and share your really wonderful insights on these very difficult issues. Um, but alas, we are at time. So thank you all so much again for joining us. Um, thank you for taking the time to the middle of the day or at the end of the day to log on. Um, yeah, we, we hope that you'll be able to join us next week for our session on Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific, um, Redeeming Justice, where we'll be tackling the many flaws in our current uh, criminal justice system and um, thinking through some of the issues there with Jared Adams, Lori Levinson, and Gil Grassetti. We hope you can uh, make it then. And in the meantime, um, thank you all so much to our really fantastic um, panelists today, to our moderators for facilitating such a terrific conversation. And thank you to all of you for taking the time to join us. And we look forward to seeing you all next time. Thank you. You've been listening to Online Together, part of LARB's semi-public intellectual series. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. 
Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Thank you.